make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. I'm here with my friend today, Barnett Bain. I'm so excited that he's with us. Um, Barnett is a producer, writer, director. You might have um, seen some of his amazing movies, What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams, Milton's Secret, Homeless to Harvard, The Liz Murray Story, and The Celestine Prophecy. Barnett, welcome. So great to be here. It's so great to be with you, Kaya. Um, I miss our breakfasts. I know. I'm so happy to see you. I had a beautiful walk on the beach this morning, thinking about you, thinking about when we met. Um, do you remember that day? I will. I remember it so well. Yeah. yeah. You, you, what have I been surfing? Were you surfing this morning too? I wasn't surfing this morning. No, we had some, we have some wind on the water. So I just took my dog down to the beach for a walk. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So I met Barnett when he came into the office when I was working for Inferno Distribution, which is now called Lotus Entertainment. And he came in and gave us one of the most memorable pitches that we'd ever had in his understated and relaxed style. Talk, you were talking to us about the Celestine Prophecy back then, weren't you? It was. Yeah. So let's let's talk about your origin story. I mean, how did you get interested in the entertainment business? I have no idea. Did it find you? You didn't choose this path. The path chose you. You know, I uh, graduated high school young, 16. As did I. I went to, um, I went into university the next year. I flunked out of my first year. I had to repeat that. I got, um, five D's the second year, so I needed, the repeat year, so I needed one C minus to pass the year. So I did summer school, I got two more D's. And I thought, um, this is crushing and humiliating and demoralizing. And I was still a baby. This is in Canada, I grew up in Canada. And so I got on a plane and went to um, London uh, to art school and uh, started making 
little films with um, a Bolex, wound up Bolex, and um, got a job uh, working on a little film called Star Wars, the very first one. Oh my gosh, what? I didn't know this about you. And I thought, um, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing? I was making uh, holograms. Um, remember, um, help me, Obi-Wan? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, how could we forget that? Well, you know, I spent the better part of three months doing that, help me, Obi-Wan. And then uh, after at the end of it, they didn't use that. They found another way to do it. But in the meantime, <laughs> uh, in the meantime it uh, opened my eyes and uh, to a whole another kind of life. And I guess that was sort of the beginning, part of the beginning anyway. Um, I went through three years of uh, film school in London. I wrote a couple of movies. And um, moved to me to New York and was in the advertising industry for a little bit and um, wrote while I was you know, behind my closed office door. And one day, um, my boss walked into my little my little closet and said, "You know, you're not here on a writing sabbatical, <laughs> <laughs> so you're fired." <laughs> Next day, I uh, sold a screenplay. So it just sort of life kind of life reaches out and grabs you by the hand, and um, it's a dance, you know. So some of it is inner directed, and some of it is the muses. I didn't mention your book at the beginning, and I love your book. It's the art of being and doing, right? It is. Um, where is my book? It is the book of doing and being. Book of doing and being. And another one called the third story. And the third story. I didn't know you have another one too. You have this one. I have another one actually coming soon called How to Be a Friend. Oh, I love that. What a fantastic title. That's like we in in the entertainment business school. I always talk about finding your wolf pack, and a lot of it is how to be a friend. It's all about that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So was, your, was your spiritual path kind of with you early and all along? Because I know that's a core piece of who you are. Yeah, very early. Very early. Very early. I mean, there was a number of years when uh, most of it fell away. Um, and some hard years. But it was always the grounding piece. I could never fit it into the way of the world. I could never fit it into my circumstance. I could never fit it into my education, into my religious environment, and, and into the community life. It was just, I always felt like some kind of alien. And um, so I made that. Um, bad and something wrong with me some sort of flaw and um 
eventually I began to find a tribe and it, it grew. It never entirely got extinguished, but it sure got um, pounded out a little bit for, for quite a few years. But it was always there. When I look back, it was always there. I always knew that um, this idea of there's me and there's you, I always knew that was bogus. I always knew there's only we. And I always knew that um, everything that I see, everything I sense, everything I can imagine, everything I can remember, eyes open, eyes closed, everything I ever was, everything I ever will be, every rock and tree and creature is all me. I always knew that. So uh, yes, um, it is. It is the um, the primary um, substance of my life. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Did you find the work of like Alan Watts or anyone like that from those early years before um, even spirituality outside of the major religions became popular? Um, I found Alan Watts because I fell in love with the voice. With his voice. With his voice. Right. And, uh, and his I, chuckle I and his endearing chuckle. <laughs> chuckle and just that kind of mid-Atlantic, uh, that sort of, uh, growly, kind, and uh, um, even before I understood what drama was and storytelling was, um, here was this character, the smartest person I'd ever heard, who knew how to tell a tale. To this day, if I'm driving around, and it happens quite frequently, you know, looking through, trying to find something to listen to, and and there's Alan Watts. Um, I can't get out of the car. I have to sit there till it's over. Not great. I mean, I did that yesterday on my run. I was like, I'm going to put on a podcast, and I just shuffled through podcasts for a while, and then I was like, I really want to hear Alan. <laughs> so I put Alan on, and it was just so fantastic running through the canyon and being soothed by his voice. He was uh, the earliest for me in my teenage years. Remember back when he was on KCRW at like yeah. one in the morning in Los Angeles, and I'd stay up all night to listen to Alan and Joseph Campbell and some of those early Zen Buddhist teachers who were bringing it to the West. Joseph Campbell, um, I spent some time with, um, a few weekends with, so he's another one. I mean, Joseph Campbell was the most um, glamorous 
smart dude <laughs> ever. <laughs> More than Timothy Leary? Come on. <laughs> well, I never met Timothy Leary. And he, you know, everything I know about Timothy Leary is just um, sort of genius and wild. But um, Joseph Campbell was, uh, it's not widely known. For anybody that is interested, we're going to do this little spiritual detour for a minute and <laughs> come back to the movie business. You look at this book. Where the Heart um, Beats, John Cage, something, something. Buddhism. John Cage, Zen Buddhism, and the Inner Life of Artists. So if you want to flip cool. out. I love it. That's a saga. And it is exquisitely, exquisitely written. Exquisite. And, um, you know, there are things to discover in it, gems on every page about um, Joe Campbell. Joseph Campbell and Yoko Ono were like that. Oh, isn't that interesting? Um, and then back long, to your origin long story. Before John, long before John Lennon was around. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, who who Joseph Campbell was and um, before he uh, shot to notoriety for perpetuating this monomyth, which unfortunately is actually and not helping us as a culture anymore. Monomyth, wait, do you mean uh, his work in Star Wars? The but... journey, this whole thing the about the journey. journey is, yeah. um, is uh, an unfortunate development. I'm sure he's turning in his grave. Um, you know, that the industry, our industry has discovered that there's a, this temp, they've, they've made it so brittle, uh, they now use it as a template for how stories are can be um, developed and commodified. And the net result is um, our industrial filmmaking has become arid. Uh, you can tell just turning, coming into a story at any point, you know where you are. You don't need to plot. You know where you are because you can sense where the arc is. You know, between things like the hero's journey nonsense and um, saving the cat, <laughs> all of these things, all of these uh, templates. Now, anyone that... Oh, the sacred canon of screenwriting. <laughs> oh, it's, it's excruciating. Um, fortunately, we still have... We still have some hellions and wildcats here in this country, and then we have European filmmakers that um, are just aghast at this. Um, but the the templates for filmmaking, nobody, no musician says, you know, you've got to have um, <laughs> You got to have a verse and a bridge. It's got to go this way. And that's the only kind of music that is available. You can't do anything else. You can't, <laughs> nobody ever says that you can do anything you want musically. But uh, when it comes to uh, telling um, film and television, we are uh, crippled. And we have this idea that uh, everything is conflict. Not internal conflict. People against people. 
that everything is um, is fight or fuck, and there's no uh, internal unpacking of who we really are to ourselves and to each other. That that's where the action is. That's where the stories are. But we have um, been trained um, since Star Wars and Jaws and the dawning of these big epic tales that are modeled, that were written and modeled after the hero's journey at a time when that was new and innovative. Uh, and development people, um, they suddenly have a language. Okay, now we know how to make a cookie cutter has to fit into this, has to fit into this, and we know how to sell it. And that's all we get. Uh, I have uh, some, but you know, there are some fabulous examples of here, of the monomyth it's called, of the hero's journey kind of stories, fabulous, fabulous. But I'm more interested not in hero's journeys, in post-heroic journeys. I'm tired of heroes. Um, I'm interested in human beings and, um, yeah, I'm with you there. Some, I think some of my favorite stories of the last couple of years are really that, um, I'm thinking of Queens Gambit, sure. uh, I'm thinking of Halston, um, that were just all about the truth of these relationships and the internal struggles against the, uh, joy, the voyage of being in human relationship and the struggles of that and the beauties of that and the hardship of love. And it just like spoke to my humanity. Uh, and I, those types of stories really resonate with me. And obviously they've really resonated with, with everybody. Yeah, they did. And, um, you know, they're wonderful. We have a few filmmakers that, um, are not seduced by the hero's journey stuff. You know, there's no hero's journey in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And there's no, well, let's plot out a whole thing and then connect the dots after. You jump into the middle of a story and you tread water and you swim and you get lost. And a story finds itself on the second and third and fourth draft, not on the first draft. If you can find your story on the first draft, you're engaging in mechanics there's no room for for the mysteries to grab hold of you and take you somewhere characters write themselves but not if everything is plotted out before you start first act second act third act and half points and plot points and you know you take the magic and mystery of storytelling and and hand it over to a bean counter that's what you get <laughs> you know as a novelist i was mentored by tom robbins and he writes all his novels longhand in pen yeah. no going back he turns those yellow you know stack of yellow lego pads into uh, the typist who then go ahead and like types everything up for him and i used to talk to him about that process which is the process that he taught me in when i was writing my first novel and he said look you don't want to know what's going to happen 
on page 400 when you're on page 30. You've got to connect with your characters and go for the ride with the journey that they're on and not give yourself an exit so that you force your imagination to go somewhere new. And so I spent a couple of years in that exercise writing my first book. And it, it's definitely not something I recommend. <laughs> it's super tough going, but it, it's beautiful because you are on a journey of discovery. Um, that is a surprise as to where it goes and you know however many drafts you get into it later. I had a character who I wrote um, called Gideon, who was in the first draft of the book. And then it got written out. And for about five drafts, he was not in the book at all. And then the final draft of the book, he came soaring in and then like took over the whole narrative and became the love interest of the main character. And it was like just being on that voyage uh, with them was incredible. I felt like I was witnessing their relationship come to life uh, as though I wasn't even writing it. It sure was a lot of fun. It was sure a lot of fun, but I don't recommend it. You know, we're in an industry where in television, you have to turn in an outline. You're not going to be able to just go for the journey of the art. You've got to have an outline ready to go. Your showrunner's got to know what the heck you're, uh, you're going to be writing about on your deadline absolutely so you know you have to it's different um horses for different courses i like what robert says you know the discovery draft um but it's a lovely term compared to vomit draft which is <laughs> the industry, how the industry are, are generally um they generally conform to um they're written knitting together treatments and ideas of uh they conform to templates a true discovery draft is a journey it's an internal journey you allow your subconscious to come out onto the page and you follow threads it's it is truly a discovery of um the concerns you have and the um the values that you have and it all comes out and it gets expressed. And then the shaping of it comes subsequently. You know, often I write, um, I don't even write in order. I have a thought and I have a scene. Here comes a scene. And and you're quite right. I mean, I agree with you, Kaya. If you're working on a, um, if you're working um, in a system, in an operation, then you you write in the system. and you know, that's not how writers' rooms operate. That is not what it's about. I want you to tell us about what dreams may come and how that project found you and what, what it was like working on that beautiful movie with Robin Williams, also a really spiritual film at its core, a film about love. Um, it was based on a, on a Richard Matheson novel. Well, we... I took a lot of liberties with it, um, moved the plot in different ways. And uh, it was the the rights to it uh, were owned by um, uh, Stephen Deutsch. And then he brought me, he had it for nine years. Couldn't get it made. Then he brought me in. At the same time as we brought in um, Ron Bass uh, to do it, uh, to rewrite it, and he Ron figured out some of the major problems. So for for those of you who have not seen the movie, it's about um, 
it's a love story. And, you know, one of what makes a love story great are the challenges that stand between uh, you and your ability to love yourself and love others. So the, um, this particular story, the major challenge is that um, one of the lovers is alive and one of the partners is deceased. So that, you know, that's a, uh, that's a problem to be overcome. <laughs> but there were things in the book that, um, uh, that didn't really translate and uh, were not visual. It was very philosophical and uh, it didn't, it, there was nothing cinematic about it. And Ron Bass is brilliant and figured out the solutions to lots of these things, it became very visual and attracted a director, attracted a studio. Um, and they said, well, we will make it. It's expensive, but we will make it if you can get um, one of three actors. And one of those three actors was Robin, and Robin wanted to do it. And it was a wonderful experience. It was really an honor to be involved with the movie and to be involved with Robin. What did the experience teach you? A humility and self-value at the same time. You know, the, the, the tendency is to, as for artists, is to measure themselves against others. You don't measure yourself against Robin. You will lose by, you know, if you give away power when you measure yourself, you give away power to the stand. The standard becomes um, defined by the other. And so if you're measuring yourself against Robin's talents on the, the standard of Robin's talents, you're <laughs> going to lose that. <laughs> you, it was really... Um, it was really a, um, a a wonderful experience for learning how to separate, uh, learning how to recognize and acknowledge that tendency. That's certainly a tendency that I have is to compare myself or my work or with other people, uh, to honor and respect other people, um, and to know that I have a unique perspective on the world, and it uh, it matters, and it doesn't. It's not, it doesn't need to be um, assessed in the in the same way with uh, as as others. So interesting. I know Shakespeare wrote, uh, "Comparisons are odious," which means they stink, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know for myself, a, a one of my lifelong themes, challenges, and point of awakening was that theme of envy. I write about it a lot. My last YA novel is all about exploring that theme of envy um, and how destructive it is and what happens when you actually can overcome it. What does that look like? What does that transformation happen in your life? And, and it's something we constantly are up against with human beings, especially as we age. You know, it's just a never ending uh, opportunity <laughs> to learn, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what you're most passionate about right now. So I know that. Uh, you're always on the edge of your of your no, of your passion. I don't have a. I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't have a most passionate thing going. 
It's surfing. That's because you're a surfer, because our most passionate thing is always surfing. (laughs) I don't have a most passionate thing going. I want to... It's breathing. I want to make peace with the um, the, the habituated um, tendencies that I have uh, to be uh, ad, uh, uneasy and to be um, to to be dissatisfied uh, with things. I just I want to find well-being and and I also want to expand my imagination. I am very aware of the boundaries of my imagination. Very aware of it. It'll go so far and then I can't seem to. I'm not just talking about storytelling in life. Uh, I'm very aware of the horizon of of what I can, can conceive as possible. And I want to expand that. So is it... Um, Passionate? I guess it is passionate. I guess it is passionate because it it's a um, a driving force that is going both ways, uh, so, and it's somewhat erotic. So I guess it is passionate. That's really beautiful. What what does that look like in your daily life? It looks like this. It looks like being appreciative. It looks like being open and willing. It looks like uh, having an awareness of um, all of the different Barnets that are operating at the same time. I have a whole bench, an entire <laughs> bench. Yeah. How do you decide who gets a turn at the mic? Ah, well, that's the whole, that's, <laughs> that is the whole deal. So the more attention that I pay for it, pay to it, um the uh, i am more and more quickly able to identify the major players um the ones that are uh, constructive and the ones that are uh, less constructive the ones that have fixed ideas um and the ones that have uh, more humility i am able to as long as i am self-aware enough and not forgetful and not just going through life. But if I have, if I just tuck it in a little bit and I can watch myself, I get a sense of who wants to jump forward. There are things that happen in life and the day-to-day living of life that I notice if something comes up that is the same or similar or remotely familiar, in some way that doesn't even have to be, it can be the below the waterline of my awareness, remotely similar to something that was difficult earlier in my life, whether it's last week or 30 years ago. That, that guy jumps off the bench and is in the game. <laughs> <laughs> Comes right in and it's all about like protecting and I don't want to, and it's automatic. And most of, most of every day, Many times an hour, some part of me come jumps off the bench, or, or or sometimes I have an image of it like I'm driving the car, and then there's this other versions of me in the back seat, and they leap forward and grab the wheel, and uh, I have to become more and more aware, or they do it automatically, and I'm and I'm not 
we we all have the um we all make the assumption that our personalities that we have one personality and it's like a river that is flowing uh, when in reality it's more like running film through a projector you know 24 24 25 frames a second and they're individual frames and you run them fast enough it seems like a river of, of data. Um, we all have so many versions of us and we run them fast enough, it looks like one thing is going on. I don't know how I got off on this, but I forget what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> what do what you say, what does it look like? So that's what it looks like. Um, you know, it, every story is a love is a love story, and that applies to whatever you're doing as artists and writers. But it also applies to the living of life. Um, and so, what I do um, all day in every way is try to remember the love and to become more and more aware of that. And that includes knowing um, who's on my bench and who's grabbing the mic, and is that the version of me that I want grabbing the mic? And can I lovingly um, tell him, you know, give me back the ball, sit down, have some oranges. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not playing. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I, I, you're reminding me of some of the really inspiring conversations I had with Gary Shandling, where I was, you know, 30 and maybe confused about his orientation with um, his relationship between his spirituality and, and, and TV. And I was like, well, I don't understand this Venn diagram, Gary, like, what does being spiritual have to do with being on TV uh, and show business? And for him, it was all about being in the moment. And I remember his logline for Larry Sanders was something like, this is a show about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. And it's a metaphor for life. And he was always talking about that intersection between how can you bring more of you to the moment uh, and really be yourself and try to take away the masks that are, you know, distorting uh, reality in front of you so that you can just be more available to what's really happening, uh, to what's really happening in the moment. And even just going through the world with him, you know, driving down the street in the car and like a policeman pulls us over or whatever, cause he's speeding. And then he would just drop in, in the moment with what was actually happening and, um, you know, crack a joke with the cop and make the cop laugh. And there were just, and you could just tell he was so uh, available to what was really going on. And it was like walking through life with a Zen master. I learned so much from that well he was a zen master yeah completely sorry can you hear me yeah i can i said completely yeah he was so what's that intersection look like for you between your own spiritual life and practice and your continued work in the film business your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, it's one thing. The it's one thing. No distinction. No. It's one thing. There is nothing else going on. 
<laughs> there is nothing else going on. But you're, uh, we may not be aware that the whole game is one of exploring who we really are to everyone else and to everything else. That's the whole thing. There's nothing else going on. So we go through without awareness uh, of that, and we call it life, and we think it's about whatever we make it about. Underneath, 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 you know, you go to sleep at night, and you wake up in the morning, and you think, oh, I had a dream. And then if you, know, if you pause for a moment, you realize that, well, in, there you were in the dream. We had this little avatar in the dream. Um, and that was you. You were looking at it, your dream stuff through the eyes of that little avatar. But whatever you, everything you were looking at was also you. You made up the whole thing. So you were both subject and object at the same time. That's a clue. Um, the, uh, the idea the notion that uh, there is a level of awareness. There is a level of awareness where I get that it's all one thing. As that more and more deeply settles in me, or in you, in anyone, it changes everything. And so I could go to war at this level. I have to kind of really pull in my consciousness, pull in my awareness into a very small, a smaller story about what my interests are and who I am. But at some point, you wake up in the morning, and you realize I was the whole thing. And that, that begins to change everything. So that's what it looks like for me. Um, the film business, when I was very young and I moved from uh, Canada to Los Angeles, I had writer's block and I went to a therapist. And I was moaning to him one day about Hollywood. And he said, you know, Barnett, <laughs> You're not in Hollywood. Hollywood is in you. I didn't understand that for many years, and now it just seems so obvious. That's literal. That's not a metaphor. So um, not in the film business. The film business is in me, and the challenges and the, uh, the grace and the difficulties both um, that present themselves in as I make my way through the film business, they are reflections of certain energies that I'm working out in a in a, in a dream life. We call it the film business, but I don't pretend that the film business is something that I am in. I am the film business. <laughs> uh, I want to see what some of the 
beliefs and choices and decisions and thoughts and feelings and attitudes uh, that I have and that I hang on to from going as far back as the nursery or maybe even generationally. Can look at the film business okay it's hierarchical it's patriarchal well you know what does that say about me you know pretend i'm not same goes is equally true about everything that's going on in our country and community in the world it's it's a hologram um and some days some issues come up more so than others sexism racism i mean pretend i have that i have nothing to do with that or i'm above it really that's my ego i hope some of that makes sense oh i love you <laughs> i'm so glad you had a chance to be with us today we're super grateful thanks for being on the show we didn't talk about what you wanted to talk about, or was that what you we wanted? We talked to about talk? everything I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and well, I'll have you back so we can have more conversations just like this one. You're my you're my show regular now. I'm you'll be delighted. You'll be delighted. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.